Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, March 28th. We begin with a look at the ongoing war in Ukraine, including Vladimir Putin's victory date that he has in mind for the invasion, as well as the latest talks planned between Ukraine and Russia set to take place in Turkey. We speak with Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. It's a first in the world of medicine. Microplastics have been found in human blood samples. We speak with a researcher from the University of Amsterdam for what this means and what we can do to protect ourselves from ingesting the harmful compound. Next, it's our weekly conversation with Dr. Chad Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Dr. J brings us details on a new study that might have you thinking twice about having that nightly glass of wine or cracking open a bottle of your favorite craft brew. And finally, it's Motivational Monday, our weekly segment aimed at helping you achieve your goals and live your best life. This week, we meet Dr. Andrew Hahn author and clinical psychologist, and we hear his unique approach to self-healing. President Vladimir Putin has apparently set a deadline for victory in Ukraine, but what does it actually mean? With some insight into the latest in the war in Ukraine, we're joined this morning once again by Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Good morning once again to you, Andrew. Thanks for being with us. Good morning to you, too, and uh, well, thank you for having me again. Appreciate it. Let's talk about this deadline. Putin apparently setting a deadline of May 9th, where he wants he wants the war to be finished at that point. So what is the significance, and why even make a proclamation like that? Well, it is actually interesting that he went out and would have gone public on something like that, because, um, it, it, I mean, a lot of negotiations, in my experience, is that, you know, there are natural sort of political objective dates, but I'll, and, the, and May 9th is a very important date. It's Victory in Europe Day. Now, in the Allies, the West, in, uh, they celebrated on the 8th. So in Canada, the E-Day is marked on the 8th of May. In Russia, it's uh, it's the 9th. There's, a, there's an interesting story behind that, why there were two signatures in World War II, but I, we don't have the time here, I'm afraid. The point is, that's Victory in Europe Day, which is extremely important for Russia. Uh, the, that is the end of the, the, the victory of the Great Patriotic War and the Russian 20 million dead and so on and so forth. So clearly, they want to bring this war that currently is underway to a victorious conclusion, and they can have that Victory Day parade, because they do every 9th of May. The Russians have a military parade on Red Square, at Victory Day Parade. Now, the Ukrainians also do the same thing. And they've shifted their date now to align to the West, but they will have one on the 8th of May. So there's actually an incentive for the Ukrainians, as well as the Russians, to declare victory and have parades that day. Now, having said that, we should take note that uh, tomorrow there will be, for the first time, face-to-face talks between Russians and Ukrainians now in Istanbul. So they've had them before in Belarus. Now the Turks are hosting it. I think things may have progressed. Okay, well, let's talk about the fact is, you know, you've got this date on the calendar, Andrew, that we've talked about and the significance of it for Russia. But Russia, when they came out, had figured that uh, from what we're hearing in reports, it would take two or three days to to gain access to many of the, you know, um, uh, major cities in Ukraine. It has not worked out that way. We're hearing about the fight that these Ukrainians have, not just the soldiers, but the people. What would they have to do differently? Because uh, this has not been a cakewalk for the Russians. 
No, exactly it hasn't. And, and the Russian position now in negotiations that we're able to see, uh, and there's a lot of this behind the scenes, but we're, we, President Zelensky gave uh, an interview uh, to Russian journalists uh, just in the last uh, few hours. So we're able to, to put together from that, plus uh, other things that the Russian delegation have said in terms of their talk. So there is an outline emerging. Um, and so if you, if you just walk away from Putin's maximalist stuff about, you know, regime change and denazification and go to the uh, common areas of discussion right now, but, and we're seeing it. So the first and most important is Ukrainian neutrality. This was number one from the Russian point of view, and Zelensky has agreed to that in principle. There is discussions and there are ongoing negotiations now about security guarantees with certain Western countries like the United States, Turkey itself, possibly Germany and France and so on. Um, and, and so that, but that, that's moved a lot, that one. Now, President Zelensky, in the last uh, interview he gave, uh, he's also mentioned very critically that he's prepared to negotiate the status of the Donbass and Crimea. Okay, as opposed to before, where they were saying there was no, nothing to negotiate, the Russians simply have to leave. So now the door is open for some give, and so there's speculation now. Uh, would it be a, like a Hong Kong sort of arrangement mm-hmm. so that you would have uh, a lease? You know, the Russians would lease it from the Ukrainians. It's their sovereign territory, but they lease it. Now, from 1991 to 14, Russians did lease. Sevastopol, uh, for the basin Sevastopol, from the Ukrainians in Crimea. So there's already a bit of a precedent there. So it's interesting. And, uh, you know, it's really all about the land, let's face it, right? And, and isn't that Zelensky has made it very clear as of this morning that Ukraine's priority is ensuring its sovereignty and preventing Russia from carving up the country. But he also said that, you know, there is opportunity if he could get a face-to-face with Putin. Is that even a possibility? Yes. Uh, yes. So, so to, you made two very important points uh, on the sovereignty issue. Yes. So Ukraine bottom line remains sovereignty. And so there are then there, the diplomatic ways of massaging that, which I mentioned, the Hong Kong solution, the leasing solution, de facto, de jure. There, there are diplomatic pathways to achieve that. The, the meeting, uh, so, so this one here is, is very much a situation where the Ukrainians are pressing uh, a head-to-head, like a face-to-face meeting between Zelensky and Putin, and uh, the Russians are saying, sure, we can do that, but only when we have substantive, uh, almost an agreement to sign. This is where the Russians are. So they have not said no to such a meeting, but they're saying not yes. We want to see more progress by our negotiating teams to the point when they, if the two leaders get together, they're more or less going to ink the agreement. It's interesting to me, Andrew, because, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin, a man we know so much about, but at the same time know so little about. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking that ego has to be playing into this to a certain extent, particularly when you lay a date down like May 9th. What is it going to take for Vladimir Putin to walk away from this, being able to kind of present it as a victory to his people when they've lost a lot of soldiers who perhaps, from what we're hearing, did not go into this thinking they'd be battling civilians and not liberating Ukraine from Nazism. So it's it's an interesting cobweb that he's in. What what's it going to take? It's going to well, they have control of the media, which is uh, very important for them. How he shapes the the domestic opinion, so the West won't see it like that. But what's important for Putin is that uh, the Russian people see it like that. Now, and the younger people, they have access to other ways, other internet sort of things. So so he's not going to convince everybody of that, but he may convince a. a 
a significant amount to maintain his position of power. Now, he, he is diminished right now as we speak. Uh, we'll have to see how this how he massages the end result. And, and there is this possibility now that, that there could be an agreement. And it's not out of the realistic element that he could have it by May 9th. It's conceivable, not guaranteed, but conceivable. And then, and then you do spin. I mean, and he would be spinning this one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, therefore, he would spin it as a victory in terms of the limited objectives. There's a Russian senior general the other day. He walked back the whole objective saying what the Ukrainian, what the Russian military operation was all about was, uh, was to secure the Donbass. That's, that's all that, you know, that's what they've said. So they basically walked back their objectives, say, well, we weren't after that. We were after this. Fascinating. Thank you again for joining us with your perspective. Always love hearing what you have to say and a great discussion around what is going on in Ukraine right now. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Microplastics are everywhere. And for the first time, they're being detected in human blood. With insight into the significance of this discovery, we're joined by Dr. Heather Leslie, who's been researching microplastics at the University of Amsterdam. Good morning to you, Dr. Leslie. Good morning. Well, let's, uh, before we get into through the recent research, let's, let's break down microplastics. Exactly what are they and how would they be able to get into our systems? Where, where are they coming from? Yeah, they're basically the plastic dust, let's say, from our uh, plastic stuff that erodes slowly and uh, gets into our living environment, into our indoor air and food chain and uh, and water system. So um, the the interesting thing is uh, we've measured it all over the place from outer space to in Chardonnay, but uh, the last place we were looking for them was in the human body. And in order for them to get in the human body, they have to be very, very small. And that makes them really hard to detect, and uh, that's why we hadn't really been able to find them before. But uh, now with the new method, we were able to find them in the in the bloodstream. Can you tell us, you know, how much plastic we're talking about? You, you're talking about it's almost like a fine dust or a powder, but when you add it all up, what did you find? How much was in the human body? Yeah, it was a little more than a, a microgram in one milliliter of blood that we found on average, if you counted up all the different types of plastic that we were able to uh, look for. And uh, that sounds like a, a very small amount, uh, but if you if you think about on a scale of a whole body, then we're talking of a, a few uh, milligrams. And in terms of uh, pollution, that's, um, that's uh, yeah, a, certainly a detectable amount. What it toxicologically means, like how dangerous it is to have plastic in our bodies, that's a a question that still needs to be resolved, and that'll take quite a few years, I'm afraid, before we really get a handle on any health effects that might or might not uh, uh, arise. So just to bring that amount home, is it true then it would be about the equivalent of a credit card per week in terms of how much plastic is being ingested? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, 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 number because that was... uh, earlier uh, an estimate um but it's it's um that's was what was being ingested and this is a smaller amount that's um in the bloodstream i think than mm. than the credit card wow so let's talk about the toxicology what what the negativities when it comes to our health is when we're ingesting these plastics yeah well um we we know from plastic that there's uh, two parts uh 
there's the, the chemical additives and then there's the polymer. It's like the backbone of, of the plastic. We know a lot more about the, the chemical additives, but in this case, I was really interested in knowing what can the little bits themselves do in terms of what we call particle toxicity, which you know about from air pollution studies where we look at how many particles are in the air. Of course, these particles are a little bit different, but still sometimes materials instead of small molecules can cause uh, toxicity like inflammations. And I think that's the important thing to focus on in the future, um, uh, what kind of um, yeah, immunotoxicological consequences there are of having uh, plastic in our blood. Just got a, an interesting text in a, a question relating to the fact that over the past couple of years we've been wear, wearing masks. Do you think that the mask is enough to stop that that powder, that fine powder from getting into our systems? Um, I think, well, when the masks are made of plastic, you, you will breathe in plastic from the mask itself. So that's a downside of wearing masks, uh, unfortunately. Um, but um, so you can't really filter them out with a mask that's also made of the stuff that uh, you don't want to be breathing in. Mm. So, so what, what, what can we do? What are those things that we can do to give ourselves yeah. some protection? Or is it just throw your hands in the air and it's going to be around us and this is life? Yeah, well, there are some little things that we can do individually, but also some things we can do collectively, which some people also forget about, like using your voice and trying to make, you know, decisions that you can make, uh, you know, in your workplace, not just in your home. But in your home, you can think about um, if you're uh, doing interiors uh, in your home, you can think about less synthetic textiles um, all around you, less plastic stuff, and also in your kitchen, uh, we have a lot of plastic cups and, and cutlery and things like that. And if you don't need to, to use plastic uh, and you can use metal or glass or ceramics, you might also reduce your, your uh, intake of plastic a little bit. But we haven't really researched that. What are the most effective ways to reduce your plastic individually? So I, I would say get politically active and see if you can uh, change the world and and. And I'm pretty sure the future will be less polluted when we all work together. Let's hope so. And maybe this study, uh, you know, helps dig a little deeper into exactly, you know, the things that we can certainly do better in the future. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you for the attention. Thank you. Heather Leslie is a researcher in microplastics and environmental health at the University of Amsterdam. It is no secret that heavy drinking is linked to potential health problems from liver damage to increased risk of cancer, but most people likely don't think perhaps that a nightcap in the evening is much of a health threat. Well, now new evidence suggests even one drink a day is linked to detectable changes in the brain. To discuss the research, we are joined this morning by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning, Dr. J. Good morning. Okay, we've had this conversation before, but it seems to, you know, that the information gets tighter and tighter. And now we're talking one drink a day and it can do obviously discernible damage in our bodies, but in our brains. Yes, this is, this is terrifying. I, and I think I've been thinking about this a lot. So it's like taking uh, the issue of smoking. We, we think of it in black and white terms. You're a smoker or you're not a smoker, and there is no zero tolerance for smoking cigarettes, right? But we don't think of alcohol in the same way, and this study is making us or forcing us to think of it in that kind of terms. 
is there no actual safe amount of alcohol? Like all alcohol potentially could be problematic, even as low as one drink a day. And that's that's sort of a whole new concept here. Mm. Does it matter if it's wine, beer, or spirits? So they uh, no, it, it was just literally one unit of alcohol. And most alcohol studies are like that. It, they don't discern one for the other. But, you know, one eight-ounce uh, glass of beer is equivalent to, you know, two ounces of, of uh, wine, which they're all equivalencies there. But essentially this was a U.K. study. They, look, they looked at 36,000 uh, functional MRIs of the brain in a population of age 40 to 69. So this is a huge, huge number of people. And they could tell, according to the study, the difference between somebody who did not drink any alcohol at all versus somebody who drank one drink versus somebody who drank more than four drinks. There was a discernible difference, and it was quite negative on the alcohol side. Were you surprised by the findings of this study, Dr. J? Yes, absolutely. Um, that that even in theory one drink made a difference, and even like you know one to two drinks was discernible. That's that's um, very very surprising. I think we have to be very careful with this study, even though it's big and it, it involves a lot of people. Uh, God, there's so many variables involved here, and I don't know that this is a uh, a takeaway study that you know that drinking is that bad, or even one uh, one drink um, you know is going to permanently affect you. But it certainly makes us really think about uh, will will the safety standards shift from right now is up to two drinks is acceptable, um, you know, up to five days a week or 10 drinks in a male. uh, You know, that's an acceptable safety alcohol. And that might change to actually less if, if we start seeing studies like this popping up. Yep. Andrew's and, crying right now. Well, I mean, it doesn't help that there's like 37,000 people that were in this study. Yeah. <laughs> we can't discount this one. Uh, but uh, thank you so much uh, for your time, I guess, uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. J, for bringing us the latest. The bearer of bad news. Sorry about that. Somebody has to be the heavy, and it's you. Thank you so much. Yeah, you betcha. It's Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Now, more than ever, people need the tools to help them move forward in spite of anxiety, depression, chronic pain, or other mental and physical roadblocks that they're facing. Author and clinical psychologist Dr. Andrew Hahn has come up with a transformative strategy that he writes about in the new book he co-authored called The One-Hour Miracle, a five-step process to guide your self-healing. Dr. Hahn joins us now. Good morning to you, Dr. Hahn. Good morning, Sue and Andy, and anyone who has the name of Andy, it's a wonderful thing to get to share that together, so I'm already feeling great. I'm glad, I'm glad you took care of that, because I was going to have to bring that up, Dr. Hunt. Uh, thank yeah. you for, for, for being with us on this Motivational Monday. Now, it's taken you decades. You compiled this, though, so you've, you've got it down to a five-step process to self-healing. Maybe. Tell us how it works when you, when you boil it down to five steps. Uh, I can make it even simpler than that, and then I can tell you the five steps if you like. Sure. Let me tell you what I think suffering is and why anyone goes to a healer, because I think it's just the same thing. I don't care what you call it. You could call it chronic pain or depression or anxiety or bad relationships or alienation, or you have a dream and you know what it is, but something's keeping you from being able to create it. I think it's only one thing, which is trauma. And trauma simply is something that can't be taken in stride, handled, and integrated. That's it. That's the reason I think people suffer. I think suffering and trauma are the same thing. 
So all healing is, is mastering suffering. That's all it is. And it's very simple. If I had one message to people, it's very simple to tell you the best way you can do this on your own. Whenever there's something you can't handle, in that moment, a discomfort is born. So um, the discomfort and the thing you can't handle are the same thing. If you have anxiety or you had a panic attack, and I said, when you're having the panic attack, what's happening in the body? And you said, my heart's pounding fast, for example. I'd say, this is going to sound funny, Andy, but you're not having a panic attack. Someone whose name is heart pounding fast is having a panic attack. And it's not my heart pounding fast any more than you are my Andy. It's a living being, and it was born in a moment just like you. It has a life of its own, and it has a story to share particularly about its birth. And if you could choose to become heart pounding fast, if you could do it by choice, because the problem is people unconsciously identify with the sensation and they think it's who they are, but it's not. It's just an experience they're having. So if you could choose to become heart pounding fast, you go from being unconsciously identified with it to being consciously identified with the person who is choosing to be it, like being an actor in a play or a movie, movie particularly relevant today, or a, narr- or a novel. And instead of identifying with the character, you identify kind of with the author. And you identify with the one who's choosing to become it, not the thing you're becoming, even though you will fully experience it. And then what you do is you bear witness to it like you're holding this other person, this other being, whoever it is. And it's the very act of moving from being unconsciously identified with it to consciously identified with the one who's choosing to be it and then saying, I'm holding you and I'm bearing witness to you. And then what happens is you move to not being it but just having an experience of it. So you say, this is something I'm experiencing. It's not who I am. And as soon as you do that, something remarkable happens, which is it goes back into its pure form, which is energy. And so, because when there's something you can't handle, what happens is it moves from being its pure form, which is energy, to matter. It slows down a lot. And the only thing you need to do to get it to go back to energy, which is the speed of light squared, which is who I think you truly are, is just to bear witness to it as opposed to identifying with it. So that, if I had one message for your audience, whenever there's something that you're feeling suffering about, which is not pain, but it's pain about pain. It's like um, you're being judgmental or you're being anxious or you're being comparative or you're being compulsive or whatever it is, find the sensation that's associated with the thing you're suffering about. Bring all your awareness to it like you're, uh, you're, you found it. You become, you become aware of it. You allow it. You bring all your attention to it and you say yes. And you become it from the inside out and then you let it share while you're there with it. And then what will happen is it will just go away. So my message to your audience is whenever you have some kind of suffering, find the sensation. And that any discomfort, this is an interesting idea, is a narrative waiting to be revealed. So if you have a headache, before you take a pill and say, I hate you, 
Treat it like it's a friend who's come to share something in order for you to heal and grow. Just become headache before you take the pill and say, okay, you teach me. What have you come to share with me? What's happening to you? Where are you beginning? And I guarantee your audience, if they just did that, they would get therapy that was really extraordinary all by themselves. Everything else after that is kind of just a jazz riff. That's my message to your audience. Fascinating. Fascinating. Complex, yet simple at the same time. So, doctor, my question then is, how do we find that root cause of our suffering or that trauma you talked about? Because sometimes it's not always terribly obvious, is it? Um, Well, that's what that the only way you can do it if you haven't done some work with us or trained with us is just ask it where it began but then you have to be totally open-minded because it might say it began with sue at age three but suddenly you might get a picture of a woman who's about to get her head chopped off in the french revolution so you could say okay you're somebody in the french revolution and i thought you were what happened to me at age three but that was just an echo of this Mm. because whenever it is you can't handle something Life will bring it back to you over and over and over again, like Groundhog's Day, until you master it. So you can work in this lifetime for a long time, but you may not get a result because it's something that happened to you at, in the French Revolution. Or it, you might get a picture of a great-great-grandmother on your father's side who you didn't even know existed. Or you might have a sense she's here. So if you ask the sensation, if you don't have any other tools, which I can tell you about, but if you have no other tools, you have to ask it, like it's the expert, and you say, you know, what have you come to share with me? Where are you beginning? What's happening to you? And you have to just be totally open to anything, any possibly in the universe. And it will then tell you if you are really open-minded where it started because you want to get it at the root because everything else, even if it's horrific, will just be an echo. And if you have another tool called kinesiology, you can actually ask your body And the best way to do that, if you don't know how to do something called muscle testing or kinesiology, which is just a way of accessing your deepest intuitive knowing, is just ask the part of you that just knows. You can't figure it out, but there's kind of a visceral knowing, like a gut intuitive knowing. And if you just bring your attention there to that gut knowing that knows everything, and simultaneously bring your attention to the sensation and just ask and be really open-minded, like you don't know the answer, like life will reveal it, something will come to you and then trust it, even if it makes no rational sense to your head. Mm. Dr. Dr. Hahn, we have to take a quick break. Can you stick around with us for two more minutes? Sure, it would be my pleasure. Thank you for having me. On this Motivational Monday, we are talking with author and clinical psychologist, Dr. Andrew Hahn. Andrew, thank you so much for staying with us. Your new book, The mm-hmm. One Hour Miracle, a five-step process to guide your self-healing. We only have about 30 seconds, perhaps, for each of the five steps, but can you kind of give us a little basic rundown of how it works? Sure, and if you only have 30 seconds, I won't tell you a story. The first step is you find out what the most important thing to work on is, and that takes, you can read the book and find that out. And you have to make sure all parts give permission. Then what you knew next is you have to see if there's something you have to do before you even start the process because it would sabotage the process. That's step two. 
Step three is you sort of prepare for a journey by asking a series of questions like, which is really going to be, where did this, where did this problem originate? And does that person need anything other than sharing their story? Step four is, you take this journey by choosing to bring all your awareness to the sensation from the inside out and then just you'll start to live out the story like you're an act, you know, in a play or you'll see it like a movie or you'll just know it like it's a novel. And then if it needs, if that being needs to do anything other than share their story, you give them whatever they need because you ask them. They might say they need to be held or they might say they need to die or they might say they need, you know, to have someone put their hand on their forehead. Whatever it is they say, if they need something else, you give it to them. And then you see if the sensation goes away and you'll know right away because the discomfort will just leave and then you'll know something changed. Mm-hmm. And then step five is you get to learn all kinds of interesting lessons and you make sure you you then nothing could could unravel the work so you can live it in your life and live differently and then you get to choose if you want your life to be different or not that's the five steps and in this work uh dr Han, just before we let you go i would think that you, you've got to be dedicated to it because we've been taught and brought up a certain way to accept the pain to accept the anxiety to accept those things that are painful and you're you've got a different approach as far as you know, that acknowledgement and uh, a different type of acceptance. How long would it take for somebody? Uh, if you had a minute, I would tell you there's some things that literally are like miracles in a moment. That major dep- One woman had a major depression and chronic neck pain and anxiety about speaking in front of crowds and a sense of deep alienation that she'd been working on all of them differently for years and they went away all of them in 20 minutes and essentially didn't come back but there are other problems that have many layers to them and it's like doing an archaeological dig and there's no way to know until you start the journey Doctor, we've had texters say we want, they want you to keep with us all morning long. They are really enjoying <laughs> listening to you. Thank you. Fascinating. And we'll send people to your website, lifecenteredtherapy.com. The new book is called The One Hour Miracle, a five-step process to guide your self-healing. Thank you so much, doctor. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me on. And if you ever want me to come back, I will be happy to share stories or anything else you like. You guys have been a joy. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to share it with your audience because it's what I live for. Thank so you. We will, great. we'll definitely have you back. Thanks so much for your time. That is Dr. Andrew Hahn, author and clinical psychologist. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.